that's what makes this really interesting to me uh, when I read Campbell's work initially was this this is kind of the lens that I was looking at it through and of course you know linguists and mythologists of all kinds of sorts have, have known about this monomyth although they don't call it as such you know it's just that Campbell does this really good job of articulating and illustrating it but you know people like Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were abundantly familiar you know with the themes in these kind of cycles that's why that's exactly why C.S. Lewis you know in looking at mythology says that Jesus is the one true myth mm -hmm. he's the he's the one where the where the cycle is completed for the ultimate boon and the ultimate good of humanity um, so to me that's really exciting stuff oh. because it means that that as humans are not sort of, but we're hardwired to think this way. You know, I've said on a number of podcasts that that our our native tongue is mythology. You know, that's this sort of, of series of symbols and 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 themes. themes. Greetings, friends. It's your friendly neighborhood PhD, Dr. Judd H. Burton, director of the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. Tune in to the Prometheus Lens for a deeper dive. All things continually lead back to serpents, dragons, fairies, Nephilim, and fallen angels. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. As Mike Kaiser used to say, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lens. This, this development of this knowledge that's being talked about within the mystery schools. An ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. There is a hidden history that's been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd call wind of a giant skeleton. They would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. We are all on the hero's journey. Mankind has been in contact with and influenced by extraterrestrials. Leave the Sitchin mound of bull feathers out of it. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. A different perspective. A different perspective. What's happening? What's up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast, a place where the conversations are always enlightening. I'm your host, Justin. Here we like to use the allegory of the Prometheus lens to take a second look at everything. And if you are here, then you must have been intrigued by the topic, the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian uh, creation. So, or you just seen Dr. Judd Burton's name and you knew it was going to be good. But if you have not seen part one, I encourage you to go back and check that out because we're picking up on tablet two today. But Dr. Judd, thank you so much for uh, sitting down and going through all this with us. I really appreciate your time. Uh, we left. Yeah, my pleasure. Oh yeah, man. Uh, when you offered to actually break this down into a little series, I was I was really excited. 
because uh, like you said last episode there's just uh, so much here we spent you know like an hour and 15 or an hour and 20 minutes just on the first tablet <laughs> and I apologize for all the sound effects guys uh, while I'm editing my videos I just take the audio file into GarageBand and make adjustments as needed so that's what those random sounds are what we pick up is uh, in Tablet 2, uh, basically that Ia hears of the rebellion of Tiamat. So like mm -hmm. what we left off was Tiamat was uh, planning to, to kill her offspring and just we got to talking about all these hybrid creatures and stuff that she was creating and preparing for battle and then uh, brought in King U as her uh, leader of her rebellion and also took him as husband. So that's where we left off last time. But right. But here we hear about, you know, the EA hears about the rebellion and he begins to worry and he goes to his father and Char to tell him about the plans. And he mentions the monsters and everything that's uh, being created that he saw. So just, you know, the context here of this God seeing these creatures and being so afraid, I think speaks a lot. It mentions a, that the monsters were being fit with the mantles of brilliance, making, mm. making them as gods. Mm. Uh, now, what, what do you know about these uh, mantles of brilliance? Cause I, I don't know nothing. <laughs> yeah. So we're we're in terms of the creation epic, it's still very much primordial, primeval territory. We're still in the largely in the context of of the beginning, as the the name of the actual epic would suggest. Um, but the uh, the uh basically kind of re without retreading old tires in other words basically what we're looking at here is tiamat is getting ready to avenge uh opsu who had been the uh, mesopotamian personification of the underworld that that's certainly what the opsu can that's where we get the word abyss from uh but tiamat uh is enraged dispatchment of um the Apsu. And so now she is basically building this army and it's comprised of all kinds of, of, of chimerical kinds of entities that we looked at last time, like scorpion men. And they're even kind of satyr figures, you know, they're, they're called rams in the, the epic, but they're followed up by the, uh, the qualification that they, they incite terror and, and just stifling fear, uh, in their enemies. And so they're, there may be an influence there on, on the later uh, you know, iterations of Pan. Um, at any rate, the um, the leader of this army, as you pointed out a moment ago, is King. King is kind of the um, kind of Tiamat's general, uh, and if if you read. You certainly get intimations of this in the first tablet, but if you read in the second tablet, um, all these preparations are being made to equip uh, Tiamat's army, and it, included in them are these mantles of brilliance, and 
there are uh, references to uh, um, other kinds of, of talismans and to tokens, but there's a whole, um, you know, there's a whole armory, celestial armory, if you want to call it that, that's at work to equip the, uh, the this rather foreboding and intimidating army that Tiamat is, is putting together. Uh, so much so that the other gods are, are trembling. And that always made me think of the, the Watchers and Enoch eventually mm -hmm. being terrified of their own project. Uh, and so that's, that's still kind of, kind of the purview here, at least in terms of connective tissue between Mesopotamian mythology and the, the religious ideas that eventually became, um, part and parcel of Hebrew thinking in the old Testament. Um, so there's, there's definitely some carryover here, but the thing that, that folks need to remember is that we're still still very much in the, the, the primordial landscape. In other words, if we were to use an analogy from uh, the Greek world, this, this is a war of the Titans. It's almost like the Titanomachy uh, uh, to an extent in, um, in Greek mythology, to where you have the, the first echelons of those rebellious offspring, which were about to uh, really kind of an, under the auspices of, of Marduk, who's also referenced in, in these tablets, uh, who we see becomes really the prominent uh, champion of the other gods, uh, rather in this 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 war against Tiamat. But um, in in terms of other correlations that we can make here, um, Tiamat very clearly represents the unbridled chaotic wild elements of the supernatural um, in in much the same way that chaos is represented in the first first couple of chapters of Genesis uh, you know we spoke last time about the Tohun being a a linguistic derivative of the word Tiamat so that that chaos entity is is present in uh, the Old Testament it, it's present uh, almost immediately warring with God uh, in, in the um, you know in the initial phases of creation. Yeah, when he his so spirit the, hovers over the waters, right? Because the waters was Yom, right. so it was like a word association. They, they, well, that there there's that too. Both of those elements, the water um, and the formlessness, those are you know water in in the ancient world, bodies of water like the sea and lakes. Things like that, even rivers to a certain extent, represented chaos um, because uh, of all, particularly for the sea, not only the dangers of the weather, but all of the unknowns that existed in the deep. And it, of course, the imagery of the watery Absu was ever present on the minds of people, mariners from the ancient Near East. Um, and so, you know, it was this other place that you can make use of you could travel in it but you couldn't live in it couldn't breathe water and so it, it it represented not only chaos but certain elements that were antithetical to the um to the very livelihood of, of humans uh so you know here again this is part of the interesting connective tissue and it's why sort of alluding to our, our last conversation, why these discoveries in um, 
Mesopotamia, modern day Iraq, helped to fuel a lot of the expeditions in the Levant and further further studies of the Bible, because clearly we're dealing with similar traditions here. There are similar themes and in, indeed similar personages that are represented in, in both of these, these accounts, the Genesis account and the Enuma Elish, uh, that are, are, are so detailed that they can't be coincidence. And one thing I thought was uh, interesting is how you talked about the, the different connecting tissue was I, I found it ironic that when the first offspring came about and they planned to kill Abzu, Tiamat just stood by and, and allowed it to happen. You know, whether she agreed with it or not, she allowed it. And then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. she's outraged. But it's the, if I remember correctly, it was because they were they were loud and noisy and, and they couldn't get any rest. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the, right. you know, right. Enlil and Enki in, the, in those epics and those stories, they're mm -hmm. so similar because... They create humanity, and what what is it? They're being too loud and obnoxious, and the gods couldn't get any rest, so that's why they brought the flood. You know, there's just, like you said, there's just so many, you know, repeating themes in these stories. Yeah, I mean, and in, in, in that respect, there's kind of a poetry to it, to not just the... Enuma Elish, but in fact, you know, in Genesis too, there are poetic elements that are put, put to use. Um, because quite frankly, even before humans had writing, that's, that's how we related history from one generation to the other, is that it was generally a kind of poem or song that was sung. And so that's why you have these kind of lyrical elements and, and poetic elements that, that exist and repetitive themes that exist, almost a kind of rhyming of themes, if you will, uh, that persist in the literature of that region. Um, so, you know, getting back to uh, you know, Tiamat just sort of, you know, taking a knee, essentially, while Absu is, uh, is dispatched with, this this points to the chaotic nature and unpredictable nature of chaos in general. You know, Tiamat personifies that, so it shouldn't come as a huge surprise. The Absu was useful to Tiamat at some point, and then because chaos is is uh, unpredictable, I, I think of uh, always think of Two Face from the Batman uh, comics. Yeah. Uh, comics, yeah, you know that it was completely his behavior was completely unpredictable although it te tended to be polar uh it was still unpredictable and in that same way tiamat takes a knee as i said and but yet when opsu is dispatched she is angered uh in in keeping with her character uh, because that there's that element of unpredictability. You couldn't predict how she's going to react, um, swinging from one extreme to the other. And of course the creation of this army, you know, going into the second tablet speaks to all that because look at, look at the extent to which she is going, the, the unpredicted extent to which she's going to take revenge on Opsy. Yeah. I just, that's one thing that really stood out to me and, 
once he goes back, you know, Ea and tells Anshar about this revolt, and he talks about, you know, she's made these horrible monsters, and she's given them the mantles of brilliance, and it even said in quotes that it made them as gods. Mm. You know, it says, and then mm. they basically called a, a council, like a divine council meeting of the, said the uh, Agigi and the Anunnaki, or the Ajiji. Mm -hmm. uh, could you uh, expound upon that and what the, the difference between those two? Because it sounds like it, it's like an upper, lower class, uh, like ranking of gods or. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, the first is a more, a more generic uh, designation. And the second, the Anunnaki is uh, probably the one that people are going to, you know, they hear, they're going to hear that word. and Oh yeah. I recognize that. Um, either from discussions in Mesopotamian or biblical literature or, you know, in ancient aliens or, or, you know, Sitchin's, you know, Sitchin's works or something like that. Um, the Anunnaki were, uh, 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 as you pointed out, we are looking at rank and file here. So the Anunnaki are, are a lesser tier than their, their elder race, the Agiki but they're part of the larger pantheon of Mesopotamia and um, they include personalities like um, Enlil and Anun and um, Inanna. And these are, are some interesting names of personages to tease out of the ranks of the Anunnaki because sometimes Enlil, because he's a, a king of the air, uh, and his his motivations are, are, are almost mercurial. Is a kind of a Satan analog uh, in in certain certain settings, and Inanna, of course, finds various iterations in Mesopotamia under names like Ishtar, and in the larger swath of of the ancient Near East. Um, shows up as as uh, Asherah. The, and then the Astartes in the Levant. So, the Queen of Heaven, um, right? Queen of Heaven, yeah, that's exactly what, what I'm getting at. And and likely the the female presence in uh, New, De New Testament prophecy and Revelation. Now we're probably looking at the same, same entity altogether. Um, analogs in other cultures would have included um, Aphrodite amongst the Greeks and Venus amongst the Romans. You know, we're not. Th this is not the Venus on the half shell uh, that's that's depicted in so much Renaissance art. Um, whatever name we, we choose to tag on, or whether it's Aphrodite or Inanna or Ishtar, uh, this was a goddess of war, death, and promiscuity. Um, not the goddess of love. Not not the uh, the Valentine's version of, of mythology here. So the, um, yeah, the Anunnaki are just one of these tiers of gods that show up in the pantheon. At least we have some rank and file uh, in the context of the, uh, uh, the Enuma Elish. Unfortunately, um, we've never been able to recover a complete list of the Anunnaki. So we don't know. We only know a few of these personalities. I think maybe six or seven um, there may be a couple more, but the, we, 
we never find a complete list, you know, in the fragmentary remains that we have uh, from some of these tablets and cylinders of exactly who comprised the ranks of the Anunnaki. Yeah, I recall like some tablets and stuff talking about the, the seven Abkalu sages, but like you said, I mm -hmm. mean, this, those might be in a, a particular set of seven and who, you know, we don't know if there was more or, but, uh, mm -hmm. but what I thought was interesting too, was, you know, we had mentioned already that, that Ia was trembling with fear and they call this divine council meeting and they're basically trying to formulate a plan. Who's going to face Tiamat and who's going to, you know, stop her. And it says that, uh, mm -hmm. that silence falls over the council. That nobody mm -hmm. wants to face her. And then, uh, Ia finally speaks up and I was like, okay, well this guy, you know, he's going to be brave, you know, but no, he, he volunteers his son, Marduk. <laughs> Right, right. And so we get introduced to Marduk yep. here. Yeah, Marduk is an interesting figure. Um, in the in our last episode, uh, I kind of compared him as a. It's kind of a combination of uh, Zeus and Hercules in, in Greek mythology. He embodies the not only the kingly nature, but the the sort of twelve tasks of Hercules. You know, he, he has, obviously he's facing this war against uh, uh, Tiamat, which uh, his, his father so lovingly volunteered him. Voluntold him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he volunteered him, exactly. Um, but that also speaks to the, the sort of rank and file, you know, order of the gods here. Marduk is the uh, the champion of the this council of gods, the, the elder gods that we're talking about here. He says, basically says, okay, I'll, I'll do all this. But it's going to come with a price tag. In other words, you know, and this is sort of getting into not, not just Tablet 2, but, but into Tablet 3 and some of the later Tablets too. Um, but the, the deal that he makes basically is that, okay, I'll do this, but you're going to have to make me the king of the gods. You're going to have to give me all of that authority if I do this and I'm successful. And they sort of begrudgingly, uh, yeah, okay, all right, whatever. You know, um, probably thinking that, you know, his chances of his chances of actually defeating Tiamat were sort of up, up in the air. He was there, actually their own, their only choice, too. You know what I mean? If he didn't succeed, they were going to die. <laughs> exactly. It, it spoke to the, the their own longevity. And so Marduk emerges as the, uh, as the champion of the Council of Gods uh, against Tiamat. My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did. And we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted, and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up, motivate you, and relax you. 
We hope you enjoy our coffee. Be bold, be humble, be Kevlar. And you can find Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com. Enjoy. What's up? Tom Dunn here from Through the Black. We have launched our new ministry outreach, No More Dead Babies. And the website is nomoredeadbabies.com. We want you to go to that website and get a free t-shirt, okay? Um, and uh, we want you to join the movement, okay? We need soldiers to step up and say that they're going to be a voice for the voiceless, okay? Guys, we've never done anything like this before. This is a big deal, and I don't know who all is ready for it out there, but it's time to step up, okay? And we're asking you to go to the website and order the shirt. The shirt is free, but you got to pay for shipping, okay? Um, and uh, we're going to ship it out to you as soon as we get it. You, you tell us what size you need, and then we're going to send you the T-shirt, okay? Uh, we're going to have other things in the future like signs. And remind people that babies are being killed. Join hands with me as we step forward in faith. And we're going to be doing uncomfortable things, okay? But um, we've got to stand up for the baby new campaign. So we're asking you guys to join us. We're asking you guys to, uh, to go to the website, nomoredeadbabies.com and get a shirt, get a free shirt, okay? I think this boldness can be contagious, okay? Go get your shirt, guys. I'm proud to be a sponsor behind this movement. Me and the guys from the Dig Bible Podcast put up our own money to pay for some of these shirts along with some other ministries. So head on over to nomoredeadbabies.com. Claim your free shirt courtesy of us and other ministries that are like-minded and want to stand up for the children. You pay seven bucks for the shipping and get this awesome t-shirt. Head over to the website, check this shirt out. It is awesome. I can't wait to get mine. It'll be a conversation starter to say the least. Marduk. Uh, becomes uh, not only mythologically, but of course interwoven into that, uh, becomes astrologically important uh, to the the people of Mesopotamia, particularly in the, the uh, Amorite Babylonian period, and in the later periods like the Assyrian and the Neo-Babylonian periods. Marduk um, is often identified with Jupiter, uh, in Babylonian astrology, and I think that we may have touched on this last time, uh, but uh, uh, Marduk's star, or Jupiter, is often called Nibiru, uh, and this is, uh, I think, the, the, the description that I used in terms of Sitchin's interpretation of this was bullfeathers. Uh, I added that to our intro. Some road... I saw that. I saw that. Uh, that he, uh, he said that this was some sort of, of road planet that entered our solar system in a 3,000 year cycle or something like that, 3,600 years. Um, nothing you're going to find in, in Babylonian literature, Mesopotamian literature is going to lead you to believe this. And in, in fact, you can, you could go right now to the Oxford 
um, you know, Akkadian Sumerian lexicon and look up the variations of the spelling of Nibiru and none of them are going to point you towards some rogue planet. Um, there may be a couple of places where, where it's talking about the planet Mercury, but 90% plus of them are talking about, about Jupiter, Marduk star. Um, and so he becomes ensconced uh, because of his, his war um, against Tiamat. What I thought was uh, interesting too, and you, you kind of touched on it, was you know when you compared him to Zeus, because once he you know makes his bargain and they agree, uh, they all start singing his praises and stuff, and then uh, Ashar even says uh, he gives him a storm cloud and says that mm -hmm. uh, that he would ride into battle on this storm cloud so that Tiamat's army could not advance but retreat. And so, so he could have one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one battle with her. And that's kind of how the, the second tablet ends is once he proclaims that he's going to do it, they sing his praises and they offer him this, you know, this storm cloud gift. Mm -hmm. But uh, we should probably, we should probably, I'm sorry, Justin, we should probably say something about Anshar before moving on. Yeah. Um, I, as a footnote to our discussion, um, Anchar is a kind of interesting personage in all of this too. He's kind of the, uh, he's the, well, in, in some places he's the father of, in other places he's the grandfather. Yeah. So, um, he's, he's, um, kind of the elder statesman. Was he like the first born uh, of, of Tiamat? I think that's right. I'm trying to think of the genealogy right off the top of my head. I think that may be right, but, um, yeah, just as a footnote, he's he's the uh, he he's the sagest, in other words, uh, probably uh, of the council at this point in time. So when you, when you start uh, tablet three, it's more preparation uh, of the divine council. It says that mm -hmm. Anshar gathers all the gods, even the first created ones, and here it is. I I misspoke. The first created ones was. Uh, Lamu and Lahamu. That was uh, mm -hmm. Anshar's fathers. Uh, they they mm -hmm. called them. It says to declare a destiny for Marduk, and they held a part had had a party with the elder gods, and they feasted and drank wine until they were merry, and then proclaimed the destiny of Marduk. Mm -hmm. And to me, another one of those little tie-ins that put me in the mind of. Uh, the Greek gods with the Mount Olympus, because this kind of put me in mind of Prometheus, how he was one mm -hmm. of the elder gods, but he aligned himself with the newer ones to overthrow the old. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was mm -hmm. you know, seeing like a Prometheus, you know, like uh, foreshadowing, I guess you could say, or archetype. Certainly. Uh, yeah, and the the, uh, the oracular trajectory of all all of this too, with all of this language about destiny, um, is is kind of interesting too. But it, because it turns out that destiny is kind of it's kind of weaponized here. It's uh, along with with all the weapons and the 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 uh, you know accoutrement that Marduk would have had at his his disposal. Destiny is kind of this. Um, 
you know, it's kind of a, a it's, you know, th think of any sort of, you know, sacred weapon from any mythology. Now, like Excalibur from the King Arthur uh, uh, mythology, it's, it's very much sort of in the same vein. It's not uncommon to find, um, you know, in these hero cycles, uh, not just in, in Babylonian mythology, but uh, in mythologies all over the world, is that there's this, there's either a cache of weapons or one weapon in particular that, that services them uh, and is integral to their overthrow of, of their their antagonist. Um, I certainly don't agree with with some of his own personal beliefs, but I think that Joseph Campbell uh, really did a good job of illustrating, you know, the elements of the hero cycle in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah, I'm working on that right this now. Excellent, excellent comparative mythology study that that really illustrates how. Um, there is a, a, as Campbell puts it, a monomyth, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a series of steps and themes involved in virtually all of the hero cycles and world mythology. Yeah, see, I, and I'm, I'm about three quarters of the way through that, and I thought that was fascinating because where I do, I, I like reading these myths and these epics, he kind of tied that all together for me. And like to, to mm -hmm. summarize it, I liked how he said that basically you have you're in your normal day life you know so like in this example marduk he was just living amongst the the gods and the divine council his normal day life but then there's a calling forth mm -hmm. and then you accept mm -hmm. the calling forth and then you get supernatural aid and then once you get supernatural mm -hmm. aid you cross i think he referred to it as the uh, the threshold into the unknown crossing of the first yeah place. So then you cross in over the threshold into the unknown and you battle the dragon or the monster. Mm -hmm. And, but basically, and then once you complete your task, you receive your boon and then you take your boon and you're supposed to cross back over into the threshold. And he was saying that basically that that's the hardest part because then you have to leave the, the realm of, of the gods and the supernatural back mm -hmm. into the natural and deliver that boon to humanity and, and further them. And he talked about how, you know, often you're persecuted and, and thrown to the side. And then even in Jesus case, crucified. Exactly. And see, that's what, that's what makes this really interesting to me. Uh, when I read Campbell's work initially, it was this, this is kind of the lens that I was looking at it through. And of course, you know, linguists and mythologists of all kinds of sorts have, have known about this monomyth, although they don't call it as such. You know, it's just that Campbell does this really good job of articulating and illustrating it. But, you know, people like Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were abundantly familiar, you know, with the themes in these kind of cycles. That's why, that's exactly why C.S. Lewis you know, and looking at mythology says that Jesus is the one true myth. Mm -hmm. He's the he's the one where the where the cycle is completed for the ultimate boon and the ultimate good of humanity. Um, so, to me, that's really exciting stuff oh. because it means that that as humans are not sort of, but we're hardwired to think this way. You know, I've said on a number of podcasts that. 
that our our native tongue is mythology. You know, that's this sort of, of series of symbols and 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 themes uh, that humanity has communicated with. You know, for you know, since time immemorial, since before we long before we had writing, and to look at the Bible that way, I don't think I don't think Christians should should shy away from looking at the Bible in a mythological context because it's all there. You know, um, you know, God God bless people like Mike Heiser. You know, for for reminding us that we need we need to when we're reading the Bible. We need to think about the not just the writers, but the audience. You know, we need to think about how ancient Near Eastern peoples were thinking, um, and they were thinking mythologically. Um, and we're, you know, thanks to his work and, and others, you know, we're finding out that that's very much the case. That it's that it's not just implicit in the text of the Old Testament, but it's very explicit. No, I agree, and I'll never forget the first time I heard Mike talk about this kind of uh, thing on his podcast, and I'll never forget it because it was kind of like a, a shock and awe thing to, like, punch you in the face, mm -hmm. and then once you wipe mm -hmm. the, the blood away from your nose and clear the mist out of your eyes, you can see better for it, but I remember he said, sure. read your Bible like a fairy tale, and I was like, what? Mm -hmm. What? You know, and then he explained it. He was like, because he said, if you read it like a fairy tale, he said, you know, it's not. He said, but if you read it that way, he says, you're reading it with an open mind, like a childlike innocence. And you can let the story take you where it's supposed to take you because of all the, uh, the, the symbolism and the, you know, the little hidden nuggets that are in there. He said, because if you're reading it with all your filters put on, yeah, you get the overall theme, but there's so much more there that you're missing out on. And that really changed how I read the Bible. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, we, sh you know, he was always talking about suspending judgment when you, when you read. I even heard him say one time, read the Bible as if it were fiction, you know, yeah. as if it were, were a fairy tale. Um, knowing that it's not, but when you put yourself in that, that kind of mindset, you, you do suspend judgment. You are like a little child and you are letting the story take you where it needs to take you. Um, and that sort of mindset would not be lost on the original audience of the Bible, either the, the old Testament or the new Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, and so why do we come back? Why do we do things like, like study comparative mythology? Why do we study things like the Enumilish? What bearing does that have on the Bible? Well, again, because we're looking at similar themes and we're looking at, at, at corrupted narratives in a lot of cases. Um, we're looking at, at credit where it's not actually supposed to be given. Um, so I think that we're, we're on the cusp of a, a new sub-branch or sub-field of, of mythography and, and mythological studies, you know, almost a kind of biblical mythography. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, there's, that's, that's why I'm thankful for programs like this, because you, you know, you're introducing people to literature that they may not have 
might, may not have even thought had anything to do with the biblical world, um, much less inspire, you know, so many of the archaeological expeditions in the, the, the 19th century and the early 20th century. You know, if, if Laird and, and particularly George Smith, who did so much of the linguistic work on the Enuma at least early on, um, if they had not done their work and uncovered this stuff, then there might not have been such a, re, a renaissance in biblical studies during the 19th century. So these two things are, are directly related to one another um, and, and of value to Christians of, of all all love bent. You know, whether you're a, a minister or a layperson, you're, this is valuable study. And that's what I think is so awesome because, you know, you you didn't know that I was reading that book. And it's just, it's just, I always call it, you know, just God's timing. But it's, it's, sure. it's so cool because that was, that's the whole premise behind this whole show was because I started with mm-hmm. the dig and then I started looking at, at these other things. And I just wanted to keep going and go further from just the Bible because I believe it, it's like a, a spider's web. It's all connected if you follow the strand. And it's basically, I was like, I'm, I'm setting forth on my own little hero's journey here. And I want to have others yeah. experience this. You know, that's why I call it, you know, this, this show is the hero's journey. And that's what it's about. It's about going mm-hmm. into the unknown, slaying the dragon, saving the damsel, and coming out on the other end, the threshold. I mean, this stuff is just exciting. It, yeah. The Bible has all of yes. this. It, it has every bit of, every bit of that. I, the, the entire call to, to faith in Jesus is a hero's call. Mm-hmm. Are you a member of the Prometheus Lens Podcast members-only group? If not, what are you waiting for? Come join the band of brothers on the hero's journey. With this members-only package, you get early access to episodes. You get special episodes that nobody else gets, special video content, documentaries. And you help support the show and keep the lights on. You know, doing podcasts, they can be very expensive. A lot of people don't realize all the subscriptions, the website fees, the, the video and audio subscriptions and things like that. So if you enjoy the content, Help keep the lights on. Help me keep doing what I love to do. Keep bringing you fire each and every week. Yeah, that's why a lot of the founding fathers uh, were so condemning of uh, the Gnostic view. Because I read a bunch of the early mm-hmm. church fathers. They said that, yeah, they say that the resurrection was, was not a real resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection. And Christ was an allegory or a Christ conscious because that way they avoid mm-hmm. persecution because they're cowards. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating stuff. Uh, but basically, that was like the end of Tablet 3 because, I mean, that's there were some little tidbits in there, but basically it was just a, like a coronation and celebration and party for, for Marduk before he went in. Uh, right. So if we go into Tablet 4... Uh, now this tablet picks up, you know, like right after the party, and they mm-hmm. they start off and it says they're singing the praises of Marduk, saying that he has no equal of the gods. And basically, I seen this kind of like like spell casting because they called, you know, the the two 
uh, firstborn, and it said they they were to pronounce the fates, and then you, you mm-hmm. keep hearing and repeating about them singing the praises of Marduk and singing all these things, and it says that he has no equal, and that what he says will be the law, and then they pronounce that Marduk after all this is over with to show his power like a demonstration. And I thought this was very interesting that that Marduk steps forward and he uh, spoke a constellation into their midst. And then he commanded it to appear and then to disappear and that the council cheered. And then Marduk uh, then made a bow, a mace, and a net for the coming battle. Mm-hmm. So l- l- let's break that down. The whole demonstration of creating universes and making them disappear. And then like we talked about the hero's journey, this was the, the gathering of the, the supernatural aid and the weapons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost like, um, it, it's, um, you know, to use the star Wars analogy, but you've got the, uh, the benefit of the instruction of the Jedi and then the, uh, of course the weapon here, the analogous weapon would be the lightsaber. But this, you know, this is like, uh, this is King Arthur pulling the sword from the stone and Luke lifting Um, the ship. This is Luke lifting the ship. This is, uh, you know, Beowulf's acquisition of his sword. Uh, this is, um, you know, there's always gotta be some sort of demonstration of the worthiness of, of the hero. And that's really kind of, you know, from the comparative mythological lens, that's what's happening here with Marduk. Um, you know, even, even his weapons are telling in the task that lays ahead of him, because what does he have? He's got a, he's got a bow, he's got a mace, he's got a net. So the mace is a melee weapon. That's for, that's for up close contact. But he's probably going to use the bow first. The bow is the long distance weapon, mm-hmm. right? And he can use the net to entangle whoever comes up against him because this sort of lays out the parameters of the battle. So he's going to have to deal, you know, with, with, with all of these, you know, what in martial arts you would call ranges of combat. And guys, I apologize for just that slight echo that you've been hearing. It's took me a while to figure out what it is, but my headphones were too hot and putting off an echo. So I have fixed that. So I apologize for those that's noticed. So there's, and of course that speaks to the abilities and the varying abilities and strengths of Tiamat's minions in her army. Um, So I think that that's very telling too. Um, And the fact that, that it's not it's this combination of things he's got he makes these weapons kind of in the same way that you know luke has to make his own lightsaber before he actually becomes a jedi but he also does this this magical sort of thing right he throws this constellation of stars out there and then whips you know wipes them away and so there's this combination of of grounded sort of celestial weapons and you have this demonstration of his his ability uh you know as a god uh as being worthy of the task put before him so again you know these mythological themes are are, are present in the enuma at least 
And it's almost like I've seen it kind of like a with the whole uh, hero of a thousand faces per perception was uh, not only a crossing of the threshold, but basically a foot on each side because he was showing that he was a master yes. of spiritual of heaven and of matter, you know, earth. so it was like he mastered mm -hmm. the physical and the spiritual aspects and held both. He is right on the cusp because he's still in the presence of the gods. He's still in a celestial context where he's demonstrating his so, so, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, so he, he's he's demonstrated his, his power. He, he, he's made his three weapons, and he's also received uh, the chariot, you know, the, the storm cloud from his father. So mm -hmm. it says that he raised his mace, which he called the flood weapon and then got on his storm chariot with its four horses named Killer, Merciless, Fleet, and High Flyer. Okay, so with those, uh, do you have any uh, kind of insight on, you know, why he would name this mace the Flood Weapon and then these, these four horses? And of course, I know a lot of people that are listening and watching their, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse might be triggered in their mind. That was the first thing that popped into my head. Yeah, but the, that that uh, correlation, I suppose you could you could make a, a a sort of generalized correlation. But of course, we've only got one rider. Right. Mar Marduk is the rider, rider on the clouds, the rider in the chariot. <clears throat> The uh, the fact that this that his mace is called the flood flood weapon um, may be connecting it to you know part of this uh, this web of celestial influence on the weapons that he that he forms um, you know because the the vo the waters there were these celestial waters that are part of part of this in the Enuma at least. So it, it may be like all, all heroic weapons. They're both, they may be both celestial and terrestrial. So like um, Excalibur, for instance, was, was in some retellings of the Arthurian romance, was made from a falling star. It was made from a meteorite. Um, so you've got this element of something coming down from the heavens, but it's being mailed into a, a weapon, a sword in this case. And so tying this to the, um, the celestial waters may be part of, of the imbuing process, the magical imbuing process. And uh, not just the mace, but also the net and the, the bow as well. It says uh, when he goes on it that he he dressed in a drapery of the most formidable armoring, and on his head was a blazing halo of blinding light. And he rode into battle, but then becomes dumbfounded with fear in front of Kingu and Tiamat. So, like we talked about before, it's the the going into the unknown and, and facing the, 
the, the monster. Right. You're all confident and ready to go once you make the decision, but then here's the, the true test and, and everybody always, is, you know, has some reservations. <laughs> certainly, certainly. And, you know, this, this is true. And, you know, the myths, the other myths from traditions that we've referenced here and, um, like the Epic of Gilgamesh really yeah, stood out to me when they went to go fight Humbaba. Epic of Gilgamesh. They both, him right, and exactly. Enkidu, like first it was Enkidu scared to death. And then uh, Gilgamesh mm -hmm. encourages him and they start marching again. And then next thing you know, it's Nimrod that's scared to death and Enkidu builds him back up. So it's like they had each other to encourage each other to keep mm -hmm. going. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but the yeah the ultimate test is is when you're you're faced with the danger. You're actually faced with the the task that's been appointed to you, um, and that's what you're looking at here. You know, in and even in the story of Jesus, um, you know, when he's on the cross, uh, the the human aspect uh, of of him, you know, you can tell is is. There's that one small moment where his humanity is in despair. He calls out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he, he goes through. He, he pushes through all of that. And that's that's what all of these heroes typically do in these cycles. Is they, they push, Not only do they push through it, but they're triumphant. I'm glad you pointed that out because I even thought of uh, In the Garden. He asked them all yes. to stay awake and pray because he was just, he was worried to death, you know, and then he even mm -hmm. uh, prayed to God and said, you know, Father, you know, remove this cup from me, but, you know, if it be your will. Right, exactly. So, yeah, he had, you know, a couple of moments of, uh, of fear and doubt too. Sure, sure. Yeah, and that, again, that's that's Jesus' humanity, you know, the story wouldn't be as poignant, nor would it be the ultimate hero story. That's what I was about to say. Uh, solidified that hero yeah, story. Exactly. Um, and that, again, that's why, that's why I say that these, these, these kinds of themes and stories are so basic to human culture and human nature, uh, that they have to be hard. You know, this God hardwired us to think like this. And unfortunately, um, particularly the more naturalistic and materialistic our, our societies have gotten, we've gotten away from that. You know, for all the good that the Enlightenment did, it it, it helped to expunge that kind of thinking, um, so that we have to have to rediscover it. And it doesn't help that our own educational system. And the West is designed to completely expunge that kind of mythological thinking. Yeah, um, you can you can make the argument that a lot of it was preserved um, in Western tradition. You know, in, in that marrying of the Judeo-Christian elements with the, the classical elements, uh, there was still a nugget of it that was fostered. Um, but as of you know the early 20th century, the, the decline in our own system of education has been to basically 
culturally commodify mythology. In other words, that it's it has has value as distinctiveness of culture, but beyond that, you know, an intersection with the supernatural, you know, speaking to our fundamental humanity, probably not so much. Um, and that's a that's a grave misfortune. Uh, and and by design, I might argue. I might argue. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that I believe that the demonic has tried to expunge completely from Western education in particular. Yeah, and they also just want to make it all psychological. Always. You know, that's where I think Campbell's been short. Always. always. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, whether I've taught humanities or or ancient history or mythology or religious studies, I've always had students read excerpts. You know, at least familiarize themselves with, with excerpts so that you're not reading stuff. You're not just reading what some scholar thinks about the material that you're actually you know intersecting with it um and the same is true of you know whatever biblical studies that i've done intersection with the the pristine uncommentated uh literature whether it's the old testament or the nmlish we're looking at here part of the process of understanding these themes and and not just the universality of them, but the the corruption of those themes in so many of these world traditions. Yeah. So now we've made it to the juicy part for all the action fans that are with us. We've made it to the battle and uh, he had that that moment of doubt and fear, but it says that uh, the gods then gathered around to watch and, and to cheer him on and encourage him but it says that Tiamat began her spells. And I thought this was interesting. In her mouth was lies, deception, and cunning. So, so these mm-hmm. are, you know, descriptors, you know, of the, the Hasatan. You know, he, he's mm-hmm. the great deceiver. You know, it said he was a liar from the beginning. And he's even described mm-hmm. in the garden as, you know, the, the craftiest. You know, there was no one more crafty than he was. So I thought that that was very interesting. Like she was speaking doubt into him. I mean, we don't get the context here, but it's almost like she was, you know, you puny little God, you think you can take me? I'm going to scatter your bones up in the dust and, you know, kind of making him have some self-conscious thoughts and doubts, like some psychological, you know, cursing there. Mm-hmm. But it says that uh, Marduk calls her out for her rebellion and her wickedness for wanting to kill her own children. And butting her in a rage, she charges forward. So he, he triggers her, her rage. And like you said, you know, she's chaos. She's unpredictable. So it's like he almost plays on this to his advantage. And he, he gets her enraged mm-hmm. and she just, you know, ruthlessly and mindlessly charges forward. And it says that uh, as soon as he does, he uses the uh, the storm cloud and that he unleashes the winds and that she even opens her mouth to try to swallow this wind. But it is so strong that it locks her mouth open. And that he then mm-hmm. casts the net over her 
and it says that the winds uh, rushed through her in her open mouth and uh, blew into her belly and like inflated her. I thought that that, that was pretty pretty wild, but the the battle goes on, and it doesn't even mention that he even uses this bow. And it says that he defeats uh, defeats the dragon. He cuts out her heart. And the gods who sided with her stood shaking in fear that Marduk spared those who turned themselves over. And he destroyed their weaponry and cast his nets over them, trapping them. But then it says he took the tablets of fate from King U, who did not deserve them and placed his own seal upon them, and then clasped them to his chest, and then announced the capture. The captured gods were now his slaves. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. So here, here we've got the we've got the confrontation. We've got the actual, um, you know, almost the. Although there are all these other other entities too, it's almost a, a, a duel of champions. Mm -hmm. In Dave and Goliath. Which again is another another yeah. So um, you have all the things that you would expect from you know the hero versus a dragon till, which is basically what we've mm -hmm. got here. Um, the uh, the net being symbolic of, of entrapment, but but also not just entrapment, but also it speaks to the. Um, the authority that Marduk has over the gods that were in, in you know, that had sided with Tiamat. So, you know, in a lot of ways, they were. The wording here is sla slavery. They're slaves, but they're kind of vassals. You know, in other words, they they've retained their their powers, but now out of force, they have to be they have to be subject to Marduk. So. Not only does does he subject and and defeat chaos, he defeats Tiamat, but everyone that threw in their lot, you know, monsters that had survived. Um, which interestingly, I should have should have mentioned that in our discussion about Tablet Two and Three. Uh, these are all gigantic creatures. They're described as being Im immense. And so there's, again, there's more connective tissue to traditions like the Nephilim and the other tribes of giants and the chimerical Nephilim in the pre-flood world as well. Um, but yeah, this is, this is the, um, the climax in a lot of ways in the story, because it's been, it's been leaning up to this and now the resolution of all the other stages of the hero's journey, uh, we can read in the, uh, the foregoing tablets, which we could, looks like we've got another episode uh, staring us in the face, which is fine to me because I love talking about this. That's awesome, yeah. And you also have uh, what I thought was interesting was uh, after he does this, he basically embodies all the other top mythos and like more specifically mm -hmm. the uh, the Norse you know in the Norse mythology mm -hmm. uh, this chaos was embodied by this 
a primordial giant called Ymir. And, and that once mm-hmm. he kills uh, Ymir, he cuts him up into pieces and uses the pieces of his corpse to create the earth. And, and it, you know, it, it was saying that they used his, I can't remember exactly. I think it was like his eyebrows as like the rim around Midgard and to keep the frost giants out of Midgard to protect humanity. And that his skull was the, the firmament and uh, his body mm-hmm. was the, the land mass. And it's just, you know, it was, you know, and you mm-hmm. see this here because it says that, uh, after, you know, when he kills her, it, the only description you get about a body part is the heart. It just says that he removes her heart. But after he pronounces, mm-hmm. you know, victory and that the other creations were now subjugated to him, it says that he then crushes Tiamat's skull and cuts her into pieces. And it says he takes her middle and he thrusts it up to make the vault of heaven. And then he drew a gate and put there a guardian proclaiming her waters were bounded. And it said he then traversed the sky seeking a holy place, calling that place Abzu. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, I'm sure you've got all kinds of connections here, but it's like, you know, I seen, you know, that with the Midgard and uh, the waters above mm-hmm. and the waters below with the firmament. You have that in Genesis creation. There's just all kinds of little mm-hmm. little nuggets there. Yeah. And there's also the in the Norse stuff, there's also the slaying of the Midgard serpent. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is somewhat reminiscent of this, you know, it's a classic hero versus the dragon tale. Um, so yeah, there's there's um, creating something out of nothing is also at at play here too, because uh, or at least the unpredictable in the case of Tiamat, uh, creating something out of chaos is is what's actually unfolding here. Um, and that's, you know, in a way, there's some connective tissue to, um, you know, to the uh, the first chapter of Genesis. Uh, because you've got the Tohu and the Bohu, you know, there in the beginning, the form and the formlessness and the void. Uh, God's spirit hovering over the waters of the deep. And so there is that, that element there that God's creating something out of chaos. You know, in the Genesis account, so there's definitely some. I, I would argue that there's connective tissue there. Connective tissue there. Even the Psalms it talks about it says that you know you bust you busted Rahab mm-hmm. into pieces, and that's what it says here. That's right, Rahab. Yes, being in that that serpent imagery is serpent slash dragon imagery is preserved in even landforms in places, uh, even in Israel. Um, this is something that Doug Van Dorn and I are looking at in our, our forthcoming book on the Serpent Mount. Uh, but for instance, um, mo- a lot of people will be familiar with my work on Peneus, Caesarea Philippi. Well, in, in Old Testament times, this region wasn't a city, but it was a kind of a shrine site, and it was known as Beth Rahab. Now, you can sort of play fast and loose with the vowels in West Asian Semitic languages, you know, as we 
we talked about at the beginning of, of uh, you know the survival of words and whatnot it's the consonants you know that end up surviving um and that Bethrahab is the house house of serpent basically uh, because that that designation is used in a number of places uh, including job uh for this kind of serpentine leviathan imagery and in fact there is a a just to the northwest of Peneus, there is a valley that looks like a writhing snake uh, that opens up from the the Hermon and the Anti-Lebanon Mountains uh, in, in, into the Golan, uh, and it it is actually called the Valley of Rahab. So, uh, like I say, there are those place names, and again. This far northern region, north was the direction of where evil came from in Hebrew cosmology. So even in some of the landforms, um, these ideas are present uh, in in ancient Israel. Yeah, I mean, it's all through there and not just Israel. I mean, the world, you have the serpent mound in Ohio. Down in South America, you have the, the plumed feathered serpent, oh, yeah, quasi kettle. Yeah, there's... Quetzalcoatl yeah. and Kukulkan amongst them. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. Uh, and one more thing before we let you go for this episode. Um, we kind of touched on it, but we, we can't end this discussion of this tablet if we don't at least revisit the, uh, the tablets of fate. Now, I know we touched mm-hmm. on it a little bit, but uh, I just want to throw out some little theories and correlations and see what you think about them. But this is treated like a birthright to me because it's like, mm-hmm. you know, she was the mother or the, the, the one, cause the father was now dead. So it's up to the mother to bestow, mm-hmm. you know, the, the blessings or birthright. Well, she gives mm-hmm. these tablets of fate to King U. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. what's the very first thing that Marduk does? When he defeats Tiamat, it says that he rips these tablets of fate from him, puts his seal on it, and then clasps it to his chest. But it specifically says that he that when he took them from him, it said because he was undeserving. And I could mm-hmm. not help but think of, you know, Ezekiel 28, uh, every precious stone was your covering and the whole, you know, garments of the garden of god theory uh so it's like Mm -hmm. is this you know a physical item is this you know allegory for birthright or kingship or maybe Mm -hmm. if and or both or what's what's your opinions on these uh tablets I, i think i think that's very much that's very much what you're looking at here i mean and it all kind of goes back to what was offering, you know, in exchange, you know, when the gods say, okay, you know, when he gets voluntold, uh, how did you put it? He was, how did you put it? He was, he was voluntold, voluntold. Uh, he says, okay, but if I do this and I'm successful, then you're going to have to give me X, Y, and Z. And of course that was the supreme authority as a, as a God. And he does it. And this is like a token of that, you know, it's a, it's a trophy, it's a symbol, it's a token 
of, of him doing that. And what's interesting about it is that it stands apart from their consent. You know, when they agree to all of this, all of this, you know, if, if, if they ever need a reminder, it's like, don't forget what I did. Don't forget who I slew. Don't forget what I took from that entity. And those are these, these tablets of fate in much the same way that, you know, the garments of Adam and Eve ostensibly were the markers of not only um, dominion and high priesthood, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. But not only before the flood, but ostensibly after the flood, because they were preserved by Noah to be handed down the patriarchal line until they're stolen somewhere between Arphaxad and Nimrod. Um, and because they seem to be, you know, they veer off of the patriarchal line there. And again, if we're to believe some of the apocryphal accounts, it's Esau that dispatches of, of Nimrod, which, which puts an interesting hue on the next episode between Esau and his brother Jacob. Because he's, he sells his quote-unquote birthright. You know, he comes into camp, he's clearly flustered, you know, probably because he's had a horde of giants chasing him along with Nimrod. Uh, he rests that token on what, you know, again, if, if that's the case and, and Nimrod had those garments, he rests that token back and literally exchanges the birthright for a bowl of stew, essentially. Um and with Esau, you know, in this shaken state of mind, it's not hard to see how he would be, you know, ready to part with those. Um, I, I made a video about this without getting too far off topic. I made a video about this and a couple of years ago um, where I hypothesized that, that, you know, is there a chance that these, these garments were were woven into the coat of many colors. That's what I believe. Um, and I think that that's, there's a, there's a, at least a good case, if not a strong case to make that because of, of how important that token was in illustrating the authority of the patriarchs of God's chosen. Yeah. If you look at the context too, it's like the, the extra biblical text says that, you know, when Nimrod was 20 years old, he put on those garments and it says that he was made strong, yea, a mighty man of the, of the field and, and through the garments was able to prevail over all the nations. So, I mean, it, it points directly to those garments, giving him some kind of supernatural ability and strength. And it's like I've theorized, you know, where it says that in Genesis where Nimrod became Gibor. Maybe that's why. And then when you look at this coat of many colors, right after this coat of many colors is given to Joseph, that's when he has this supernatural dream where even the stars bow down to him. And he tells his brothers, and that's when they, you know, conspire to to kill him or get rid of him. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There I mean, gosh, we could probably do an entire series on yeah. just that too. Which honestly, uh, I've done some episodes with some other podcasts, and I've called it the Epic of Esau. 
and I've talked about these garments and stuff. Yeah. And I, I'm actually in the middle of writing a book about all this stuff right now. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. My Fantastic. first swing in a book. So <laughs> I might have you give me some feedback. Hey, on well, it. that's a, that's a, <laughs> absolutely. That's a fascinating topic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, once again, man, thank you so much and let everybody know where they can find your stuff and, uh, about, uh, all you got going yeah. on. Um, uh, in general, you can find stuff, whether it's books or coffee now, even, uh, you can find all that at burntbeyond.net. If you're interested in learning more about what we're talking about tonight, I teach an entire program of classes on the ancient Near East, and you can take courses through the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. All you have to do is go to burntbeyond.net slash IBA, and you can follow the links, and it'll get you to where you need to go. Awesome. Well, Dr. Judd, thank you so much uh, for all your time. And uh, yeah, it looks like we're going to get a, a part three. And I'm I'm stoked about that. <laughs> three. Third time's the charm. So looking forward to it. Yep. Right. Thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it and stick around for part three. Until next time, torches high.